0: Hello, humans. Welcome to The Frontline, a leadership and business podcast brought to you by Peregrine Corporate Services, an Isle of Man-based fiduciary provider. My name is Martin Hall, and thanks for listening. In this podcast, we chat to an array of business leaders from different sectors to learn more about them, their market, skill sets, and knowledge. We hope you enjoy. Today we're joined by Mary from Film Capital. Thanks for joining us today, Mary.
1: Yep, it's a pleasure to be here, Martin. Thank you.
0: No pleasure. Uh, so perhaps just provide a bit of background to our listeners. Where where were you brought up? Where was where was your early schooling?
1: Well, I was uh, born and bred in Dublin uh, in Ireland, so um, I effectively grew up there until I was thirteen, and then my father's job took us to the Isle of Man. So I finished my schooling. Uh, King Bills, came on the island. Uh, and then I, I went to university in St Andrews, um, but decided after a couple of years there uh, to the English literature that it wasn't quite what I wanted to do. So came back to the Isle of Man and started working in the finance sector, initially in an office role and uh, then subsequently, uh, sorry, a back office role and then subsequently in front office role at Coots, which is where I, I started my investment management career about 25 years ago. Right, um, okay.
0: Was that a conscious decision at that stage or was it just
1: um, the way it I, went? I, I think it, it was partly the way it went. I think when I was very really young, I didn't really know uh, which direction I wanted to take with my life, to be honest with you. I, I was um, always very studious, always very conscientious about my studies. So I felt that a degree was where I was supposed to be. Um, but I didn't, uh, I think I, I, in hindsight, I probably should have gone for a, a sort of law-type degree. But uh, I went to St Andrews, where they don't actually read law, so that wasn't very clever. No. So <laughs> I decided to come back to the island, and uh, and I, I realised as well that I just felt that I was studying for the sake of academia rather than actually uh, looking for a way forward in terms of a career. I wanted my independence quite badly as well. I right. um, was just at that age where I wanted to get away from you know uh, being uh, reliant on my parents and so forth. So. So when I came back, I, I did apply for a job. I went to CMI first, which I think is now part of IFGL, I think. Um, and uh, that was just in a back office role, and I did my company trust exams there, partly because my brother at the time was studying for his ICSA exams. And uh, I thought, well, I'll just go down that route to start with, because it seemed like a very broad-based uh, study set, because uh, it included investments as well, which I, I quite enjoyed the investments module. So when the job at Coots came up, I, I thought, well, actually, I quite enjoyed the investments module in my my offshore company and trust exam. So uh, I thought that might appeal to me, yeah, and and it has done really ever since. So that it's, it's something where you just never stop learning new things. Um, and it's so it's allowed me to continue with a, a sort of sense of academe, but also earn money at the same time and gain yeah. my independence. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So it, it, uh,
0: it, I suppose it lit that fire, maybe sitting that investment exam, and I've had this conversation on. This and potentially a few other uh, the, the other podcasts. It's funny at that young age when either you go on work experience or you've got to make a choice to go to uni to study something that. And I only say it from my own experience. I had no idea, and probably still don't know what I want to do. But that young age, and I guess that's the way life is. You have to potentially make decisions that about where you want your career to create your career to go. And the reality is, you, you don't really know anything at that age. You? No one does. No.
1: Now, I think you're, you're being asked to make decisions that are going to potentially change the rest of your life at a time in your life when you really haven 't got a clue and I have two teenage sons well actually wants us to turn twenty one today, and you know that the two of them um, still don't know where they want to go, and I don't want to push them down this particular route. My parents are very good to me, actually; they never forced me down any particular path. The one thing they did say is they didn't want me to be an artist. They said right. they didn't want they didn't want me out on the streets starving. So I was I was actually quite good at art at school. Right. And I really I enjoy painting, for example, and, and and music and I'm quite sort of arty that way. But I I you know they said that's that's just not going to be a career that's going to get you um, you know, the comfort to which you've become accustomed, sort of thing, Yeah, so. right, yeah. So I said, okay, well I I, I get that. So uh
0: so, Banksy might disagree with that, I don't know. But,
1: yeah, I, I, yeah. Exactly, well I could have been the next uh, David Hockney or female version thereof. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, so but, you
0: progressed, You, I presume, it's, did you spend some time at Coots? To develop, um, to I, I, was,
1: <laughs> I was at Coots so sort of in the latter years of its development on the Isle of Man, unfortunately, so things were already starting to wind down by the time I got there, but it did put me on the path of taking my securities exams, because initially after my um couple of trust exams, I started on the ACIB route, um, and when I joined COOTS they had a very strict policy that you had to obviously study exams that were relevant to what we were doing. Because I'd gone into investment management, I, you know, they basically said CISI, which is the Chartered Institute of Securities and Investment, that um, I had to, to go down that route. So, so I started on my, on my securities exam, so they put me on that path. Um, and then I, I, I hopped around a little bit because after Coots, I went to the first iteration of Thomas Miller Investments on the Island. And um, I was acting more as an investment analyst rather than an investment manager. So I sort of took a step back from the, uh, the front line a little bit uh, for, for a short while. But they too were also winding down their operations in the mm-hmm. Isle of Man at that time, even though they, they reopened later days. Um, so again, I felt that, you know, things were the the, the momentum was being lost a little bit. So nice. I ended up at my first sort of proper long-lasting role as an investment manager was really at Standard Bank Stockbrokers on the island, right. uh, where I actually worked with my current colleague Paul Crocker. So uh, uh, the two of us that was also, actually we we worked al- already at Coots together. So I've actually known Paul since the start of my career. So right. <laughs> can't get rid of each other. Yeah, yeah, following
0: each other around.
1: <laughs> that's right. That's right. So.
0: To go back to those Thomas Mill days, I presume investment analysis you're looking at, you're getting under the bonnet of of firms.
1: Um, Actually, not so much firms, but uh, fixed income. It was very much fixed income oriented because um, I was doing a lot of analysis for the company's mutual insurance bond uh, type portfolios, and and they were largely fixed income based. So there was a small element of equities, but I think in terms of assets under Under management and analysis there at the time it was only about 5% equity and it was 95% bonds and cash. So that probably sounds a bit boring, but actually, you know, I quite enjoyed looking at you know duration risk and yield curves and and credit rating changes and things like that. Um, It was it was almost more of a compliance role, in essence, because you're looking at the, the sort of default risk of bonds and that sort of thing, rather than um, looking under the hood of, of, of equities, which really started at Standard Bank yeah, uh, stockbrokers, okay. so that was really where, because I also took on at Standard Bank more advisory clients, and that in a way is, a, is very much a two-way process, because although you're qualified to give advice to advisory clients, they're also effectively teaching you, because a lot of advisory clients have a lot of experience already in the market a lot of them are older than me so they have that natural um, legacy experience from 20 or 30 years in the market so uh, even though quite often advisory client portfolios are more um high maintenance in the sense that there's more um there's more communication required between both parties it's not like a discretionary mandate where you can just invest in your strategy uh, at whatever time you you want to do that for an advisory client if you want to buy a sell stock you've got to ring them up and ask them you've got to sell the stock to them um, and quite often, you know, they end up selling stocks to you too. You know, that's you right, yeah. I've been, been looking at this stock, what do you think of it? So you have to go away and search that stock. And, you know, part of you are thinking, well, it's not, not part of our core portfolio. But then you look at it and think, it's really good stock, this. I like yeah, this. And, yeah. You know, it fits all, ticks all the right boxes or whatever. So so advisory, almost advisory portfolio management, even though it's, you know, it's, it's, it's more difficult to manage in some respects. It's actually more rewarding. So I did quite a bit of that Standard Bank. I also worked with a lot of fiduciaries as well, so um, that's a slightly different approach to working with private clients because you're working with investment intermediaries effectively and people who who understand your market perhaps a a bit better than some private clients who give a discretionary mandate don't really involve themselves in investment. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I had a lot of fiduciary clients as well.
0: I guess you need a very open mind, and certainly when you talk about advisory, then you're dealing with uh, clients who perhaps have strong opinions about where they where they want to go, and yeah. uh, being able to communicate with them. Or certainly, if you feel uh, they're perhaps going down a, I use the word a path or an investment path, they they they're, they're perhaps blinded by some advice that someone's given them, or well, not advice, but you know, a friend of a friend said this investment's the greatest thing since sliced <laughs> bread, and you have to convince them otherwise. Communication must be so important. Uh, talking off the ledge, maybe at times even.
1: Yes, it is sometimes. I mean, it, it, it definitely. Uh, I, I won't cite specific examples, but no, yes, no. I mean, usually what it is is you know you, I have I know I've had a number of advisory clients for years who are extremely um, experienced people, but also some advisory clients that are that are not experienced in the recent. They want the advisory mandate because they want to be handheld through through the process. But then, as you say, out of the blue, they might come up with something that their hairdresser recommended to them, a taxi driver or a friend in the pub. And invariably, it will be some small cap mining stock with absolutely no cash flow, no earnings, and, and one hope in some dusty little bowl somewhere in Uganda. Yes. And you're going, OK, right, uh, yeah, uh, let's have a think about this. You know? and, and at the end of the day, it comes down to the due diligence that you do. What I tend to do is I would say to those, those people, well, I'll, I'll look into it for you and see what I find. And then I, I will put it down, usually in writing, because it's, it's, it's better that way anyway, in email or, or whatever. And I'll say, you know, the, this, these are the pros of the situation. These are the cons. Um, and quite often, you know, the cons would outweigh the pros. But I, I'd make it very clear uh, what those were. And then, you know, we'd have then another discussion on the telephone. The client would either say, um, I still want to go for it. just you know And then what I would do if they still want to go for it, I would say, well, I'll tell you what, we'll put, like, you know, 2% in there uh, or one and a half, I'll try and limit the, the potential for that volatility and that decision to go wrong. Of course, it could go very right, in which case I'll say, well, why didn't I invest 10% in my portfolio <laughs> right. in it? But yeah, yeah. that's the benefit of hindsight. And yeah, yeah. and in, invariably over the years, the decision has usually been right to limit the the, the speculative buys in, in, in portfolios. But, you know, it does happen the other way around as well, Martin. I mean, I, when I was at... Uh, uh, one of my other positions at the Lawn House Trust, which is a company I worked for for three years before I came to Iowa. Uh, I'm a thin, thin capital. Um, uh, I worked with an advisory client who was very senior to me um, in, in years and very experienced. And during the financial crisis, I was worried that one of his clients' uh, bonds was going to go into default. Um, I think it was worth about 50% of face value. Mm. And I thought, God, this is, this is not looking good. So he basically said to me, well, do you think that one of the biggest banks in America is actually going to go into defaults? And I said, well, Lehman Brothers went into default, but, he, but then we, we sort of compared the pros and cons of this bank versus Lehman Brothers, and we realised in the end that, you know, it, it was very unlikely that unless the world was coming to an end, this bank wouldn't be bailed out, and bondholders wouldn't be saved. So we we held on to it, and then about... Uh, 10 years ago, it, it matured at par. So it basically, right. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. Um, so, any, so anytime I speak to, I still have this client in my books, by the way, and, uh, and I speak to this client, and we have these moments like in COVID where we just sort of wonder what on earth is going on. We wonder if companies will survive or how they'll survive. And we generally don't invest in companies that can't survive big hits anyway. Yeah. But there's always one or two where you're a little bit cautious. And over the years, it's been a case of, you know, do we or don't we? Do we sell? Do we hold? Do we do we buy some more? And um, when i wanna, you know, if I get into a little bit of a panic mode, he'll just turn around to me and say, "He says, is this one of your Morgan Stanley moments? You know, yeah, no, right. yeah, <laughs> which yeah, is yeah. The, the big U.S. bank? Yeah. You know?" And I said, "Well, it could be, <laughs> yeah. but you know, it's it's that." Two-way learning process, and it's a great relationship to have, especially if you hang on to that relationship, as I have with this particular client for you know, 15 or 20 years. So it's 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 advisory is is probably more rewarding than discretionary, but discretionary is easier to 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 deal with from a you know from an administration perspective. Yeah,
0: yeah. There's kind of three things in there that you mentioned, and to, to, that ties into a question I wanted to ask around. So whenever I chat to uh, in the investment realm, I'm always interested in people's. Mindset in in 2008 when when you know we felt the world was ending certainly when it came to investments and uh, and perhaps we'll come on to that question and then that ties into like now with COVID and there's this uh, similar not similar reaction that's maybe not the right term but there's a similar so much unknown and so much concern yet when you look back now through time and again you mentioned hindsight being the third thing was. They're they're probably blips, really. The reality, in, in long perspective terms of things, they're just blips, aren't they? But in the in the middle of the chaos, it just feels it feels massive. So maybe to go back to that 2008, where were you working? What was what was it, what was it like at that time in that arena?
1: Uh, yeah, 2008. I was working at Lauren House Trust in Castletown. Town, and I was the only qualified investment manager on my team. So I didn't even have an investment team to talk to. Um, I had my fellow directors and uh, the trust and company side of the business, and you know we did discuss a number of issues uh, at the time about what was going on. But ultimately, I was effectively making investment decisions on my own, um, which was great. No pressure. <laughs> but uh, no pressure. No <laughs> pressure. But no, it was it was interesting, in and in a way, um, sounds sounds a bit precarious. But because I was on my own, I could make decisions very quickly if I needed to. Um, I had, again, you know, these advisory clients, some of whom had seen crashes before and understood how the market works it, under those sort of stresses, who also were a help to me to some extent, as well as me being help to them by doing all the research and making sure that I've covered all my bases. The key things in 2008, really, were uh, initially um, getting the Fed and the other central banks behind um, the market bailing out the banks, it was was the, really the turning point for that crisis, um, because it really started with Bear Stones going under, and then obviously Lehman uh, Brothers filed for Chapter 11, and I think it was October. Uh, I remember hearing it on the radio, and I nearly drove my car off the road, I swear to God, I, I knew that day was going to be a very long day, and not this for me, because um, that was really the start of the big panic uh, stage of it. And uh, you know, the, the TARP, this tr- uh, Troubled Assets Relief Programme that the US Senate eventually agreed on was was quite slow in coming and you know the market was falling by seven or eight hundred points the dow and i just thought for god's sake get on with it you know you need to save the economy but a number of things i suppose i learned from from 2008 well what i actually did at the time was i there was an option then to to switch some of your long-term profits and equity into corporate bonds where you could use that as a buffer against volatility, but corporate bonds at the time were yielding three, four or five percent. So you could get a decent return on corporate bond uh, issues um, or even US treasuries were I think about two to three percent, so you could get a decent coupon. The difference between then and now is that interest rates are near zero or negative. Um, Bond yields are negative. I mean, up to five year UK gilts are actually negative yielding territory now. There is nowhere else to go other than sticking with your high quality equity investments, which is what we've largely done. Um, there's no point going to cash, really. But another thing we learned in 2008 was that cash is not always the as safest as asset. Um, I think the biggest um, call that I had to make really at, at, during that time was when clients were ringing me up saying, what the heck do I do with my cash? Mm-hmm. They didn't really care about their equities because they knew they hadn't realised any gains or losses. They were just allowing that to sort of ping pong around. They were more concerned about what to do with their deposits. And of course, we had singer and Friedlander collapse in the Isle of Man at that time. So there were some decisions to be made surrounding client assets that were actually outside my investment mandate but were within the mandate company because I was a director of a trust company as well as the investment director so there were decisions to be made on of singer and Freedlander which we did actually get out literally three days before they um, went into liquidation or um, uh, closed down Um, and so those decisions had to be made very quickly there were also weird things like um, ETFs that were sponsored by AIG which obviously went collapsed or fell apart during the, the crisis um, because they were no longer the primary sponsor of the ETF. The ETF went into suspension. So I had two million clients' assets in suspension for five days, and I, I nearly didn't sleep a wink. <laughs> um, but that was just a sponsorship issue. It wasn't a, a solvency issue. So after five days, they, they found a new sponsor, and they listed again, and everything was fine. But you know, there were all sorts of hammer blows that could fall um, and I was desperately trying to avoid anything that could be problematic within yeah. that within that sphere. Um,
0: it, it's a great learning as, as much as in, in the yeah. middle of it. It's it's chaos isn't the right word, but stress and pressure. Yeah, the learning yeah. curve is uh, something to cherish, I guess. As, <laughs> as difficult as the time was, I'm sure. I know yeah, I know no where I, I worked at the time. The trust company, and uh, we had a lot of cash balances. You mentioned cash there, and. Uh, that was a you know our bank's going to be around we need to split this cash out between more banks in case some of these banks go down
1: yeah yeah and it's interesting how easily people forget that you know uh, and they say still that cash is the safest asset when actually <coughs> it really isn't necessarily um
0: it wouldn't be at the moment you had euros because they're just <laughs> you know you're not negative interest on the aren't you just you're losing money just
1: yeah and you know. i think you know, we could see negative interest in the UK as well. Right. You know, they've already got senior economists at the Bank of England discussing that possibility. So, right.
0: The, uh, the interest in when you were chatting there about uh, the banking crisis, it reminds me actually, and it, it doesn't paint the, the, the world's greatest picture of the financial sector, but there's a documentary I've seen it on YouTube, it's called 98% Owned, and uh, hmm. it talks through the financial crisis and... Uh, some of the situations there about bail, the bailing or not bailing out of, of certain institutions, where I think they bailed out AIG, they didn't bail, they did bail out them, sorry, but they didn't bail out uh, Lehman and let Lehman go, and that whole process where uh, you mentioned about it took took a while to go through Senate, and they, they talk about what, why in there why it took so long to get through that process and uh, the, the, the decisions that had to be made were yeah, just. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah.
1: But right. having said that, the COVID situation, the QE that's now been enacted by central banks and governments is far greater by a factor of government's many. I mean, it's it's just, magnitude is, is just enormous, effectively, right. um, but it's been agreed and enacted a lot quicker. And I think ultimately, because it's not, it's not the banking sector this time, it's, you know, it's perceived as a humanitarian crisis, effectively. Um, so, although my my view is it ultimately does bail out the banks because things won't go to default if you provide enough, you know, QE and support and, and, and ramp interest rates down to near zero, yeah. um, that that does protect the banking sector, which ultimately they haven't got much choice because it's the financial infrastructure of the world. You still need to yeah. leave the banks to function uh, in a functioning economy. So, but it is a humanitarian crisis. So the the, the QE that has been passed into into law effectively by and the and the fiscal stimulus has been much much quicker to to arrive um, than than it did in two thousand and eight uh, you know so and it's also been unanimous across the globe pretty much um, you know Just, Europe was very slow to react in two thousand eight by by contrast
0: and do you think that's the re- is the reason for or do you think the reason for that is because 'cause they've learned from our way or because this is more because the nature of this is, is more uh you know, about a pandemic rather than, you know, what many maybe perceive as poor financial infrastructure that could potentially cause the fears. And uh, you I, know,
1: I, I think it is the latter, yes. Yeah. I think it's the fact that it is a pandemic and it's much more um easy for politicians effectively to justify yeah. throwing loads of money at, at pandemic than than throwing money at the banking sector plus the financial sector generally is is best capitalized maybe not as much in europe but certainly in the us um, the capital buffers are much stronger than they were in 2008 Um, so when banks are stress tested you know although in the us they did say we don't want you to pay your dividends this year um, they did suggest that their tier one capital you know their buffer capital would still be at a reasonable level, even if we saw, you know, uh, countrywide defaults on on, on various loans. Um, so it is it is definitely, and I think that they probably have learned from from history. Um, also, it depends on the politics at play as well. Europe always tends to be a bit slower even in this crisis, Europe was a bit slower to act because countries were kind of vying with each other as to what kind of relief they should provide. And yeah, right. eventually, you know, they did step up to the plate and, and said, look, we've got to do something because, you know, the US and UK have already acted, you know, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but they have a much bigger, uh, c- you know, confederation of states in which to to, to, to try and reach consensus. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. a bit more difficult for
0: them. Um, but, I'll, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I was, I was going to kind of move into the the still on that same general subject but the uh, first of all suppose to, f- to set the scene a bit when you when you look at risk appetite and i guess a firm will have a risk appetite when you look at your own views on on risk appetite are you a conservative person by nature or or not or where, where would you sit, uh, say lie? which leads into a question i have
1: i think i think as a person i am quite conservative i always try to look uh, several years ahead of myself which uh, obviously the best laid plans for mice and men don't always uh, come to fruition but uh, I, uh, I i am generally conservative the, the only thing i would say is that i do believe in the cult of equity um you know I, I understand how capitalism is supposed to work which is effectively you know you invest your money at risk you put your capital at risk in order to provide capital for a company in order for it to do business and the reward you get is supposed to be a dividend or you know and or capital growth uh, at the end of the day now obviously this year we've seen cancellation of a lot of uk dividends and um i suppose the socialist view of that would be that well of course that's that's understandable because a lot of people are suffering and companies have to keep cash in their balance sheets but then we have seen some companies canceling dividends where actually they have plenty of money to pay We've actually seen a company this morning reinstating its cancelled dividends because it realised actually we've kind of overreacted, we've got plenty of cash in the balance sheet. Um, so that's good. But, you know, I think people need to uh, recognise that pensioners also rely on dividends as well. So, you know, I don't like to come across as a capitalist <laughs> or anything like that, <laughs> but I am a capitalist and I, I will say that even to my my most left-wing friends, I'm, I'm, I'm probably slightly right-wing, I'm definitely a capitalist. But I am i am conservative in the fact that I, I like to buy companies where so I can see what they do. Mm. I can see where their earnings are coming from. I can see how well or, or how badly companies manage their cash flow. And I prefer companies that will pay you a dividend ultimately because I think if you have a good dividend track record, it's something you'd like to hang on to now. That's probably less the case this year, but I think this year should be seen out of context for the rest of, of time yeah. effectively because this is very unusual. Um, and I do think that a company that generally uh, prides itself on a progressive dividend policy, is a company will look after its cash flow. I also increasingly like to see companies that are that are good stewards of their businesses, yeah. and also uh, companies that make a strong impact in their community, and you know treat their shareholders and their employees and their their customers the right way. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. and I don't like it when you, know, you hear little snippets of news about say Tesco squeezing its wholesalers for extra margin or whatever. You know, these little penny kitchen things or or you know the Wells Fargo issue with the raised all its fake accounts and fired a load of their staff, even though management knew about mm. it. You know, yeah, I thought Tell oh, them to was, do it. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. And it was that was poor. So you know we, we have actually sold stocks on the back of some of these things in the past. Where it hasn't necessarily been a balance sheet issue, but it's been a, it's been a, a sort of ESG concern, if you like. Yeah. Even, I don't even I don't really like the ESG tag, but I think it is a social concern. So my my way of saying that, I, I think I am conservative, but I do believe in corporate equity. And I, I'd like to see an element of of social capitalism creeping into things. That sounds like a. Um, a contradiction in terms effectively, but I think you know, if, if corporations continue down the path they're already taking, um and show more more consideration towards societies in which they operate and their own staff yeah. and their customers and their and their shareholders. But it, it has to be more even. I think there's yeah, yeah. there has been too much emphasis on the shareholder perhaps and not enough on 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 the rest of the the uh, the equation and, and again that's arguing against my own profession way because you know I want to maximize the
0: return for the I I asked the, sort of that like, question around that the risk appetite because one of the at the moment I'm I'm listening to an audiobook that mm. someone else recommended to me it's a psychology book uh, thinking fast thinking slow. Oh, yes.
1: Daniel Kahneman. Yeah.
0: yeah, and yeah. in that it's just a, a snippet and uh, of. That stuck with me and he, that he was talking about a study they did of which isn't obviously not related to investment around judges and judges looking at parole and their decision-making process changed during the course of a day. so as they got hungrier, their decision-making process changed around whether they, and parole was granted less towards lunchtime and straight after lunch, the parole grants were higher and this was consistent you know blind study that was done. So clearly there's a psychological process there going on uh, subconsciously. Uh, because they're not, because of interior workings. And I just wonder, in regard to investments, if that's again, is that something that's like psychology side of things, something that's factored into decision making? That, are, you know, not necessarily what time of day you're doing it. Is it just before or after lunch? But it, is that uh, is that a thought process that's in the investment world when, when, as investment managers, you're making those decisions?
1: I think I think the decisions are are, are very much based on on ultimately our client's psychology rather than ours, uh, you know, really, you know, a a client can come to you having ticked the I want maximum growth but minimum risk box. And that's when you really need to talk to them and say, well, what what do you really want? What are you really looking for out of your investment? And and quite often you learn more about what a client's risk profile is from what they tell you about their life rather than what they tell you about their investments. Um, you know how they how they've made their own decisions in life, and you could tell from that whether they're risk averse or or risk tolerant. And and yes, there is an element. I think from our perspective as investment managers, it's it, there's a I think there's an age thing as well. I don't want to be ageist, but it's it's a uh, we, we have this conversation in the office all the time about uh, new economy stocks versus old economy stocks, and we have young members of the team who are pushing the the, the Amazons and the, the Microsofts and the IBMs and all, all, all the, all the yeah, like, you know, uh, FANGs and all the rest of it. And, um, and then you have the rest of us who are kind of been bitten by the dot-com bubble bursting in the two, early 2000s. So there's a generational uh, caution, if you like, from our, our generation to the next generation who didn't experience that. But those two times were actually very different as well, because valuations in 2000 were largely based on the promises of earnings of the car rather than actually technology being part of infrastructure, which has become a real issue under COVID in the lockdown scenario. And we can see, and if, if your eyes weren't open before, they certainly should be open now to the fact that a lot of IT, integrated IT, rather than the consumer stuff, the iPhones and things, Integrated IT has become new infrastructure of the world. And this is something that older investment managers like myself have taken some time to, to get it on board with, as a, as a um, in in, in, certain, in terms of the risk tolerance. Because I always think, well, technology, biotech, very risky. You know, I only want two percent of my portfolio in that, but actually, yeah, yeah. technology is now about 20 percent of the, the global index. And you think, yeah, oh, right. hmm that's that's a real underrepresentation but in, in recent years we have been increasing our technology exposure perhaps with a through gritted teeth in some cases because we've been that you know burnt once bitten twice shy. Yeah of course. Uh, whereas yeah. yeah so the younger generation haven't haven't been through that but but so and, you know our stuff sorry
0: and on your committee have you got then you I presume you've got a blend of to bring that balanced argument
1: definitely to the yeah yeah I mean we have Obviously, Russell Collister is our CIO, and he has said, you know, especially more recently, I want the younger members of staff, the younger members of the investment committee, to 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 start making, this, you know, some, some bringing some ideas to the table about their world because yeah. their world is different from ours. You know, I, yeah. I see this with my teenage children the whole time. They're on Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, blah blah blah. You know, they yeah, <laughs> they, yeah. they, they spend their whole lives online. If it's streaming video games or fifa football or whatever it happens to be or you know um one of them are, reads books online you know yeah. it's everything is is online it's on demand it's it's there's even a language that they use which is different from the yeah language, yeah I yeah, see. yeah. <laughs> so you're, every generation
0: you're, you're, you need to listen to podcasts i've just recorded with a with a ja- the gentleman i was saying before now, and he's he's e- in the esports arena and like you said it's an, really, an area yeah. i don't don't know a lot about I know a little bit more now but yeah just another world in many ways isn't it and uh, but it is I guess I as investment yeah. people and, and in all industry just as much as we're in the fiduciary space Uh you got to move with the times whether whether that's tech uh, tech or not Yeah, so, I, I, yeah. So
1: right. I, I was just going to say I think you need that blend of right. generations on investment committee ultimately because you know, it's all very well to have all the people who think the same as you because you're all self-affirming each other's ideas the whole time. You need people to challenge that.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd say that's almost more important than having people just nod and going, "Yeah, great. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah great.
1: Definitely, yeah, definitely helpful.
0: So, so when you when you when you're looking particularly in the investment space, and I, I use the word tech in the concept of technical uh, information about investments rather than technical. Investments that means technology investments. Yeah. Uh, do you find that a challenge with clients? Because I guess clients have a broad range from just no understanding of what they're investing in, and you kind of just walk into it. And, and the language needs to be basics, I guess. Yeah. Whereby others might be, you know, like you say, very experienced, and therefore almost challenging you back about what you're talking about.
1: <laughs> I find it probably easier to talk to the people who have a high level of financial technical knowledge because then i can speak on a, on the same level as them and, and as you say sometimes if it's an advisory client there's there's obviously things they will know that i don't know especially if they're you know sometimes people want to invest in stocks that are within their own profession so they they will obviously know more about those stocks yeah. than i will um because they're almost you know Involved and in not obviously not to the point where you're talking inside trading or anything like that. But no yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So they, they operate yeah. within those and they can see for their own eyes what looks good in their own industry. So I wouldn't even presume to try and um, meet that level of technical expertise, but we can talk on a level when it comes to the jargon, if you like. Yeah, of the jargon. I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, for for other clients, it is, I think ultimately for those clients who are less experienced, it's, it's you yourself have to know everything there is to know about the market in order to be able to talk about it simply. So you have to understand what you're talking about completely in order to simplify it. And I think that's, that's a very key uh, issue. And also, we don't like to invest in things that, you know, where we ourselves might have questions, i.e. You know, a, a multi-hedge fund of funds where it has multiple strategies, and some of which we're kind of familiar with, some of which are a bit esoteric. We don't like investing in, in those sort of things because we can't fully explain them to our clients. We can't turn around to our, our discretionary you know, private client, uh, elderly client, for example, and say, Well, we invest in this hedge fund that seems to do the right thing, but we don't quite know what's in yeah." yeah, yeah. What's, you know, that just, just doesn't happen. It has to be something we can explain in simple terms to everybody if necessary. So. Of
0: course. One of the other things we touch on in the podcast with other guests is just leadership in general and your own skills in regard to that, or people learn. I mean, did you uh, Is that something just through your career that you've just had a natural ability to do, or you've learned from others? And if you have mentors that have helped you through that?
1: Um, that's a good question. I mean, I, I I suppose it it has been a very much an organic process, to be honest. I haven't been on any special training for leadership of any kind. Um, and it's it's mainly in my case it's not really about it hasn't been entirely about leading a team um, it's been being part of a team and information sharing being the most important thing communication is key ultimately um, but for me I suppose it's more about guiding clients rather than and also guiding younger members of staff now because you know we've taken on Three, three relatively young members of staff in the last uh, eight or nine years um, in the firm, four, you know, four altogether, who are all uh, budding or young investment managers. So, uh, you know, it's easy for me to to just stay in my little bubble and, and lead, you know, my clients into the right investments. But I also need to to lead my my younger colleagues into that as well. And. Um, I think there's a very good culture, especially at Finn, where, you know, everyone has the right to ask questions, to challenge. Um, I could be having a conversation with Paul Crocker, who's my fellow investment director, um, and in the middle of it, one of our younger members of the team, like Adam, will speak up and say, oh, uh, I I heard something the other day about that stock, but but, but I didn't really understand what they were talking about. Can you explain it to me? And then, you know, it's more about just communicating, which is why under COVID, for example, it's very difficult to lead the younger members of staff. So, you know, when we talked about working from home and things like that, so for those sort of staff members, it wouldn't work because our industry is very much one of debate and discussion and and involvement of of those younger members of staff, so they need that guidance. Um, But in terms of mentors, sorry, you were asking, um, I mean... (laughs) I suppose, I mean, Paul Crocker was a mentor initially because, you know, he was he was a senior manager when I was just coming into the, the, uh, my role as, as an investment manager at Coots 25 years ago. And, I mean, from, from what he was teaching me was was really about communication then as well, you know, and, and being honest with your clients. And, and when you don't know the answer to a question, I remember him saying, if you don't know answer to a question, it still applies today to some extent, um, don't pretend that you know the answer don't waffle don't don't bluff don't sort of try yeah. to be clever. go away and say that i don't know the answer but I'll find out for you and, mm. and and that sort of thing so there's a few quite a few tips over the years
0: yeah I think that's the, the if, if anybody ever asked me for advice that's the big thing as a as a youngster who got into you know just started working in government at, at seventeen and not a clue about anything and no real knowledge was in many ways, being, being, being dormant, kind of, you know, that, that you just ask questions. So it becomes yeah. interesting. But that's what I always say to staff that start now, just, just senior or not, just, just ask. You're far better asking than yeah. either not saying anything or, or doing something wrong. Uh, yeah. uh cause you feel worse for, not that we'd make you feel worse, but naturally if you, if you don't yeah. do something right, you, f- you feel bad about it. So yeah, just, just ask. Uh,
1: there, so, there, there is a bit of a, a line I noticed when you, you know, that's drawn. So I, I joined IOMA Finn, Stroke sort of Finn Capital, uh, as a senior investment manager. Um, and I was promoted to the board in 2016. And I noticed that but from one day to the next, people then sort of were a little bit more distant from me because I, I was then on the board of directors. And that does make a difference. I knew, I knew from a previous role as investment director at Lord House that that's, does, that is what happens. although so that's a much smaller company. Um, but having said that, people have still said to me in my role here that I'm, I'm very approachable and they feel like they can talk to me if they need to. And people do talk to me, especially over lockdown. There was a lot of uh, extra communication going on, obviously, with staff working from home. And sometimes it was just a case of sending the odd, you know, Facebook message to the odd member of staff who it sounded like they could do a little bit of a yeah, yeah. little bit of a cheering up, you know, and, and yeah. just say, you're, you're, we are behind you. The board of directors is behind you all, you know, don't feel so you're on your own there in your house in, in Ramsey or wherever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and
0: I, I think that's a daily challenge, isn't it? I, I mean, again, it, you work in places where there's this open door policy, but I, d- I don't really like that term because your door can be open, but still someone can be scared to walk through it and talk to you uh yeah. so yeah it's, it's being able to create that environment where where they can where they are can walk yeah. to the door up to your desk and and have a conversation
1: uh, i think also and i don't want to sort of turn this into a male female thing but i do find that the women in the office will tend to come to me because okay. i'm the I'm a woman investment director you know so i'm maybe a a slightly i don't know uh a, a more sympathetic ear perhaps i don't know yeah. but um, I mean, all the directors in the office are very approachable, but I think they, they sort of gravitate to me because I'm I'm, I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, no, I understand. <laughs> I understand. And just to talk a, a, a little bit about firm, you've got uh, Mang Space Firm, four billion under management.
1: Um, well, the, the it's that's under administration. Hey, no uh, administration. Yeah, oh. under management, we have uh, three quarters of a billion. Um, at the moment, when, when I joined the firm in two thousand and ten, we only had about two hundred million. So right. it's grown a lot uh, yeah, during yeah. that time. Um, I think we had about twenty odd staff. We're now nearly up to forty staff. Right. Um, obviously, we have the fund administration business, as so I mentioned. The funds of under administration uh, 4 billion. and then we have the, the investment management side. Um, and I would say we have a team of six or seven investment managers. Very uh, various stages. Either we have Four got quality qualified and another three on their way to being qualified. Um, the Younger members of staff there. Um, and, I mean, obviously, we, we were founded in... Russell will probably tell me off if I get this wrong, but it was, it was <laughs> 2005, I think, we were yeah. founded in. Uh, as, I, as part of their own group. And then in 2015, we went through the NBO um, right. to separate ourselves out and become an independent entity. Um, Businesses is... is it's owned by its directors, basically. Uh, yeah. um, so
0: very much managed owned from the island.
1: Very much, very much completely.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah,
1: right. Is, okay. We moved into Athol Street uh literally a week before um uh, shut down. So-
0: oh right, okay. <laughs> it's interesting there, the forty staff comments. It, it got me thinking, I've worked in a couple of firms now where where they've grown and I I that's the number I've always used where I always feel business or certainly from my own experience, businesses when they're tipping into that number, the staff, you always want to, you want to create that team environment. You want to sort of certainly as a, as a leader and director, you want to, you want to be close to all your staff. But when you, I always find just, you getting over that number, you start to lead, just because of the size of the business. Is that something that you guys are conscious of as you, as you do grow That Yeah. That, you I don't think so. that it's a challenge, yeah. I think, for sure.
1: It is, and I think, because when you're a smaller firm, I know having worked with a few smaller firms, you you are effectively the jack of all trades, you're doing everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at one point it was even posting my own letters, you know, it's sort of uh, now obviously, you know, jobs become more more and more compartmentalized, I think, as your firm gets bigger and bigger. Um but we, we don't want to lose that ability for staff to communicate with the board of directors or senior management or senior management to communicate with us. Um, we, we have made a couple of internal changes more recently. Where you know we now have a, an office manager who, uh, where well, we didn't before, who will yeah. take on a lot of these sort of internal management uh, roles. Where effectively, I think previously it was handled by the CEO. The CEO is also our uh, finance director. Yeah, and, and trying to you know, drive the business forward. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so we're we're, we're effectively compartmentalizing, uh, splitting out the roles a little bit more in order for that so that we can still see that that flow of feedback and information coming back through the company. So, um, you know, but yeah, it's, you have to admit that culture in an office is going to change as as the number of staff. Yeah, bigger yeah. And bigger. You know, I'm friends with a number of, you know, people in the board of directors of companies on the island that have six, 700 members of staff and their, their approach again is completely different to ours, but it has to be yeah. because they have a much bigger entity. But the one thing we don't want to lose is the, is the sort of, um, uh, corporate culture that we have here, because I noticed when everyone came back to work after lockdown, one of the things a lot of the staff said to me was, you know, I, I, I wanted to come back to work because I enjoyed working here, and it wasn't just because I was a director and there was, you know, they, yeah, it was because yeah. they genuinely felt that they they wanted to come back because they they missed their friends, they missed their yeah, we, we, we call ourselves finsters, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the, fin, the fin family, yeah, you know, yeah. so. It is. It is nice at the moment, and, and you know that that culture might dissipate a little bit because of you know if we grow, but but we're not we're not really in the business of growing just for the sake of growing. Yeah. You know, so we're quite happy to be stuck at forty staff for as long as we need to. But we'll we'll only hire on staff if we, if we suddenly get a big influx of business and we need more people.
0: Yeah, so, yeah. It's it's interesting actually to go back on that kind of point around staff coming back in and the challenge of of working from home because certainly. At peregrine it was a similar when we were back in the office it was very much the guys are happy to be back uh the, the novelty wore off fairly quickly working from home but i think the big thing as an observer will be i would like to think communication was good but for the younger members of staff where where there's debate going on in the office constantly i'm sure it's the same whether it's around obviously around investments we're talking about fiduciary problems issues solutions that when people are chatting, you pick up so much knowledge and information from listening to other conversations and you lo- you do lose that working remotely because yeah, you can have conversations but you don't hear overhear the other conversations and that's the thing that 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 I think people would desperate, desperately miss. Uh,
1: yeah, no, I agree. If... Absolutely. No, I absolutely agree. I mean, even at my level, sometimes I hear conversations and I think, oh, I didn't know that. You oh, know? No. <laughs> so everyone can pick up uh, bits of conversations from the people around them. And, and it's also with the young members of staff just, I mean, I, you know, we, we would phone them and we'd regularly contact them. Yeah. Via no, Zoom no. And stuff. But it's, not, it's not the same as, no, as just that p- instantaneous. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And um, Mary, if people want to reach out to you, is that LinkedIn the best way to do that?
1: Um, well, I do have a LinkedIn profile. Uh, so yeah, either that way or, uh, by email or, or, um, um, I do have a Facebook, but I don't really use that for business. So it's, it's either my, yeah. my email address is on is on our website as well. Okay. So we, all, all the the board of directors' email addresses and telephone numbers are
0: on so okay. to, to get in contact. So for the listeners there in the footnotes, we'll we'll put down a, if Mary doesn't mind the email address and obviously a link down to their website. And certainly if you're looking for investment investment services, uh, very Manx business as well with a uh, Manx strong strong Manx roots as well so uh you know getting get in touch with them with them over there thanks for joining me today man it's been really interesting uh digging into sort of yourself and your, your risk your risk mindset as well as the businesses
1: that's a pleasure thanks martin enjoyed it
0: thank you thank you for listening everyone